it's it's not like to be nice. Don't be nice. Don't say I'm gonna start that group because I want to be a good person. Give me a break, okay? Uh, let's be real. It's because it's good for your company. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Agnell, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Welcome back to the Inspire Podcast. At the Humphrey Group, we talk a lot about how a leader's inspirational mindset stems from courage. The courage to speak up, the courage of your convictions, the courage that you need to be challenged and to persevere to ultimately either winning people over or changing perceptions. My guest today, Martine Roy, is someone who personifies courage. I met Martine through our relationship with TD Bank and quickly realized that this was someone whom I had to have on the podcast. Uh, she'll tell you more about her story, but she was a Canadian Forces veteran and was persecuted as a LGBTQ person, uh, ultimately driven out of the military, and used that experience to seek an apology, not just herself, but uh, with, with a broader group uh, from the Canadian government, which they got. And that's just one of the many courageous accomplishments that she's had She's, uh, you know, made a huge impact through private work. She started networks at companies like IBM and TD, and she is a tireless advocate for inclusion. So it's a great lesson. It's a great lesson because it just shows how hard you have to work to create a culture of inclusion. And I think we can all be humbled and inspired by Martine's story. So enjoy the conversation. Maltine, thank you during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic for taking the time to join me on the Inspire podcast. It's a, pl a pleasure. Thank you for having me uh, with you and very honored. But I, I was struck when we met in our brief conversation by what you have achieved through speaking up in often very difficult times and, and circumstances, uh, speaking up for your justice, really, and uh, the rights of people who have been marginalized and ultimately not only speaking up, but achieving success. So I want to have you on because I think your story is, is so inspirational and, and many people listening see moments of injustice, see moments of um, lack of inclusion, want to speak up and learn how to do it. So maybe you could start from the beginning with your time in the military. Uh, take us back yes, then okay. and how this all began. Well, I'm from Montreal, uh, born and raised in Montreal, and my father was working at National Film Board. He was a cinematographer, and both my sister were artists, and my mother was uh, working for CBC. So very heartsy, um, and at the same time, it was the era of René Lévesque, very uh, loi, 
101, the French, the English, all that was pretty complicated years. Mm-hmm. Um, not too sure what I wanted to do in life. I was kind of, uh, I finished secondary and uh, I did went to cinema, I went to psychology, I, I was kind of lost. Um, and at one point, my father said, well, what about you go to uh, the army or you go to RCMP or Ketsimevic? And he wanted to help, right? So mm-hmm. I did apply to the three places and they all accepted me. I had to pass the test for mm-hmm. RCMP and all. So for sure, being 19, uh, I chose the easy one, which was Ketsmevic. But they sent me in Cold Lake in Alberta. We were 12 living in a house. And I said, oh, no, this is not for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I told them the army called me. But that was not even true. But anyway, they sent me back to Montreal. And then my father said, I heard that you said the army called you. So let's go sign in. <laughs> and he, he, was he very, called your uh, bluff he called your bluff <laughs> oh, all the time all the time he was always catching me he knew that you know <laughs> i was trying to slide through so he did make me go and he did make me sign my uh, allegiance contract i don't know it's it's really you sign your life to the queen mm-hmm. and you don't realize what it means when you're young right you're you think oh yeah so uh, i joined and um and that time, uh, I was, I didn't know. I was seeing women, I was seeing men, I was unsure. Uh, my best friend were now gay. Uh, we're in the 80s, it's 1983. It's not something you talk about mm. much. Um, they do tell you when you join the army, no communist, no addict or or um, homosexual, but you're like, mm, what are they talking about, right? You don't so, really take so, it seriously. So they put homosexuals yeah. as uh, on the yeah. same levels as addicts. <laughs> I mean, what a, oh, what yes. a statement but, to but hear. Worse than that. It's worse than that. When you look at the law that is black and white, the mm-hmm. law says that uh, homosexuality is the same thing than bestiality, rape, wow. and incest. Oh, my gosh. Okay, and it's called CF 1920, and it's a law, black and white, that was uh, created and uh, put in place. And if you look at the the movie The Fruit Machine, it's a good documentary that was done by Sarah Fodi that really explained what happened, that fear of communism and Mm -hmm. that. They, th- they thought that the communists would go after homosexual and they thought that anybody working for the federal agency that would be homosexual would be a threat for the hmm. country. So they put in place this law in 19, I think in 56 or something like that. And it was in all agencies. It was not just in the military. It was in the RCMP and it was in every federal agency, minister, the natural resources, national film board, CSIS, they were everywhere. And they hired, they took mostly RCMP to investigate us. And they were following us and they were dressed as civilians. And they were called Special Investigator Unit, uh, part, part of the military police. So I'm doing my training. I'm in, I did Saint-Jean, where you start when you're French, and then they send you in English school. And then I went to Borden. Borden in Ontario is the biggest base. It's 37 kilometer, and 
that's the school base. That's where you go to mm -hmm. learn. So I started by the school for language, and then I ended up as a medical assistant, and I went in training. And for sure, in that time, I was confronted of having a boyfriend um, and liking a girl. Uh, we knew we had to be careful about it. Uh, we knew it. Um, so we even said to each other, let's keep our boyfriend, you know. And I started seeing someone. And at one point, I'm training. I'm in the field. Uh, and they call me. And they say, Private Roy, can you go with these people? And I thought it was a key car. I thought they were lost in the field. And they were tourists. And I had to take them out of the field. Mm -hmm. So I joined in the car, I sat down, and then finally we go and they say, you're under arrest. Um, we are a special investigator. Uh, we are going to bring you for an, for an uh, interrogation. And they brought me that little house that you don't even know existed. Um, and my teacher of language uh, for English school came to make sure I understood everything. And then they start questioning me about my sexual orientation and oh what gosh. do I see and like nonstop. And they're very insistent and I resist for about five hours the first time. And then they let me go. And after a while, they came back again, picked me up again, interrogate me again. And at that point, I said, okay, what does it take for you to just stop, you know, and, mm -hmm. and just let me be? And they say, just be honest. I said, okay. I'm honest, I don't know. I don't know if I like men, I don't know if I like women right now. I like the army and I'm trying to focus on it and concentrate. Um, I'm sorry if I did go with the same sex, it's not, and, and I'm never gonna go again, and you know, like kind of type of thing. And mea culpa, and I feel bad, and they let me go. So I was sure that by being honest, I was free now. So I finished in Borden. I did all my medical assistant class there. Finally, I'm transferred to Ottawa at the National Medical Center uh, to finish my phase two of medical assistant, uh, which I did. And at one point, I'm called by a psychiatrist. And uh, I work in pharmacy, so I had nothing to do with my day-to-day -day job. So I, was, uh, I went there to be told that he has to evaluate me to see if I'm normal or abnormal. And we started to talk about the same thing than the interrogation for about five sessions. And then he let me go. And then again, I thought everything was fine to the point that... So I say, I want to be a com communication research, right? And this is a top secret code. So they're mm -hmm. even supposed to investigate your grandmother before giving you that job. Yeah. They bring the contract. So I was like, okay, everything is fine. They're keeping me, uh, being honest, save me, and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm going to well behave, right? And then uh, even two months later, they call me in the uh, office at National Medical Center to announce me that uh, I'm being uh, dishonorably released for homosexuality. No. Uh, they didn't know I was under investigation. <laughs> they missed that. And nine days to go. And that was... Uh, December 14, 1984. What a horrible experience. I mean, just the fact that you were interrogated this way so many times. And, and you know, I mean, maybe now I, I take it a bit more for granted that at least, you know, conscious bias in institutions like our military and government aren't there. But to just hear this story is, it must have been very, um, 
humiliating and and well, difficult. Yes, and it didn't make sense. Yeah, you know, uh, when you get reprimand for doing a crime, uh, or being late, or not doing your job, right? But for the person you are attracted to and nothing to do with my trade and nothing to do with my skill. Right. Even if you look at my report, I was stopping my class. Uh, that's not for nothing. They offered me to stand at the three years because I was doing great. I was going for a promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, I changed the old uh, medication system of the Canadian Army Forces while I was working for the pharmacy there. So it was and, and the army, what it does to you as well, that is very tricky, it builds your self-esteem if you don't have one. Because you do things that never you thought you could succeed. Walk 10 miles, mm-hmm. uh, run uh, a kilometer and a half in that time. Or, you know, all those things that you think you're never going to succeed. And you do. So you feel very, very, very proud of yourself every time, you know, that you graduate basic training, then you graduate medical assessment. So you're kind of high up there. So when these let you go like that, it's like the floor that open uh, under your feet. But at the same time, like you say, the, you feel the shame because mm-hmm. you feel like mm-hmm. you're dirty, like you're bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you feel that you are the cause why you lost that work. That yeah. it's your fault. Uh, your sexual appetite made it that you lost your carrière, mm-hmm. uh, what you wanted to do for a living. And, so, and, is, and is that uh, when, what you took with yeah. you when you left? Did you did you feel that was your fault, oh, yeah. or did yeah that must be oh, yes. a terrible burden to carry? Yeah. Yes, but like sit in the eighties, we were still not there. You know, mm-hmm. we were just before like the pandemic for AIDS. Right. Uh, it was still something that was very taboo, homosexuality. So when you get kicked out, you get out of there and you like you don't talk about it. Mm. You don't tell people tell them, oh you went on your oh yeah, it was not for me. Mm. You don't tell them, oh, they, what they did to me and you keep it for yourself because mm. you feel ashamed. And what I realize I'm the lucky one, crazy enough, <laughs> that didn't feel ashamed too long, but some still felt ashamed until they got the apology. Mm. So that's 35 years wow. of being ashamed. So I cannot even imagine what yes. it can do to someone. But the fact that we had no access, access to a lawyer, that we were all by ourselves to deal with that. Um, and they did that to so many people. Uh, and so that for me was really hard. Uh, it didn't help my self-esteem no, after I, that. I can understand. And um, <laughs> I went back to Montreal with my head between my legs. And um, I really struggled, okay, very, very hard. Um, I even ended up uh, in drugs for about six months. I just didn't want to be part of uh, I was not doing well until um, I decided to do a therapy to help me out to deal with all that and that really helped me and then I was able to go back on the market and try to find what I wanted to do for a living but even that was hard you know um, I worked for Post Canada and I was the only woman <laughs> in the place so the guys were hard with us so you know uh, I went to work in a therapeutic center and they didn't want to hire me because I was gay um, so 
it, and, it and went on just, for a little bit. Just to jump bit. in, I mean, I think that's a great example. You know, we yeah. talk about this concept of intersectionality. I mean, you were you were dealing with you know the overt discrimination as a a woman from your sexuality standpoint, and then you went to this other industry, the yeah. postal service, and then you're dealing with the discrimination as a woman. I mean, it's it's overlapping levels of of lack of inclusion but that, that always overlap all yeah. my life i find and that's what i'm telling people all the, the time a lesbian is a woman first mm, right first and foremost <laughs> so you're dealing with that uh, discrimination <laughs> and then you're dealing with the the um the sexuality discrimination as well why do you think there's not that many lesbian out there mm-hmm. as role model um <clears throat> Because it's not easy. It's really, uh, even in business, you know, you question yourself, you tell mm-hmm. them, is he going to sign the contract or not? Already to be a woman at the table is something. Right. Uh, a lot of time and, and tech, we're going to get to technical support. There too, I, I find it, it was complicated, but it did build me. It did, mm-hmm. it did build me to say, okay, uh, I need to bring the society somewhere else mm-hmm. uh, in life. Uh, I did fight, I want to tell you, I did fight the army with my father. Uh, we did the full army uh, at every level. We made it uh, to the chief of defense. Mm-hmm. That answered me. I even had a letter, I put it in, on LinkedIn, but it's in French from him telling me that because I let myself to this those sexual appetite they were in the right and it was a law and uh, mm. sorry about that and good luck um, mm. and he was the chief of staff then good for you and good for your father for even at that stage speaking up and saying we're going to have the courage to fight and be heard and and to know that you were in the right <laughs> and I think that's totally. that's impressive because a lot of people as you said just didn't and felt you know until well, they got my the mother my mother didn't uh, didn't want to she my mother was not really happy i was an homosexual mm. or a lesbian I, she was not uh, i find that a lot of time that's what happened the same sex parents uh is challenged from it mm, but right. my dad for him he felt responsible because he, he he felt like he sent me there, and on top of it, he worked for National Film Board, so that was his employer that just did that to his daughter, right. and for him it didn't make sense. So he did fight for five years. Good we did him. send, and we even made it to uh, Gouverneur General Jean Sauvé in the time mm-hmm. to be answer again. That was the law. We cannot do anything and all that, and that until 1990. I got those letters until Michelle Douglas and Sven Robinson uh, made it that they succeed to change the law. Mm-hmm. And there, I thought that was in 1992. Um, I even made a file on it. And I was sure I was going to get a call hmm. or something that mm-hmm. somebody was going to say, oh, we're so sorry. Right. Or we- maybe. Be, come back to work or I don't know, right. something, right? Very naive. Nothing. Nothing. They hired Michelle at the Justice Ministry. Uh, they give her money and they change the law. Wow. And at one point, I said, "Okay, I have to stop. You know, I I have to stop waiting for stop it to happen." Stop hoping for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, you have to live your life. You have to live your life. And and I said, "Well, you do something in your own 
self, you know, you take mm-hmm. on and you try to change the workplace and show people that what's good at the workplace is somebody that is productive, that is mm-hmm. focused, that is authentic. That's the people you want to have working for you. When IBM offered me my the job in 1999, the first time mm-hmm. they offered me a job was in the How come? I'm not going to go. I was too scared. For me, Hmm. IBM was like the military. Hmm. I was not going to go work for a corporation. So you were scared that that these biases and discriminatory practices would exist there as well. Oh, yes. And so how did you end up going? They came back and uh, um, they they knew what to say to me. They said, oh, we have a LGBT uh, Hmm. group. And I'm really Really? Interesting. Since so they, they embraced it. in Toronto. They embraced it, that, that you were... Totally. That, hmm. Totally, yeah. And that attracted me, obviously. Yes. So I decided to go work there. And just add one quick thing that stands out for me about that, that little moment around, you know, we talk about inclusion and, you know, we have our program Inclusive Leadership and we talk about you have to work as a leader to show inclusion. And the fact that that senior person took the time, was over. It wasn't just, oh, come here, you'll do well. It was, we happened uh, an LGBTQ group. We want you to be part of it. It will work. I'm a senior woman. Like all those things sounded like they switched your mind. And I think it, it shows you can't just expect inclusion to happen on its own, that you have to work at it from a communication standpoint. And then as well, they show me the 1953 T.J. Watson uh, policy letter that he did about, uh, you know, um, everybody should be at the same level, should be all equal, no matter your creed, uh, your religion, you know, your color. Uh, and that was like 1953. I was like, wow. And and slowly, you know, they got me engaged into it. And when I finally got my permanence, because you have to be permanent to be part of the group, uh, when I got higher after a year and a half, and I did the Y2K too. That's why they hired me because they, did, they would need a lot of people. So I was hired in November 1999. So I did the Y2K 2000 with IBM. I was there that night. And then um, I fell in love with the job and the group and the company and the people. And I wanted to stay there, but I didn't want to stay in St. John, New Brunswick. I wanted to come back to Montreal with that with that work because for me my family's in Montreal I'm from Montreal and uh, that's where I, I was seeing as well more advancement for me you know uh, to go further on the co- in the company which I, that's what happened because I did all the level I could in St. John so finally by applying for work in Montreal I finally got a job in Montreal in November again 2005 and I uh, came back to Montreal. And for me, uh, that experience with uh, creating the LGBTQ Employee Resource Group at St. John, uh, going in the first Pride Parade in 2000 there, um, was like, wow, you know? Um, my job was not easy, was taking service call. I would take on over 150. At the end, I was doing all the operation for Canada, for IBM. Uh, but the fact that I was authentic and the fact that I was implicated made it really like worthwhile. So that's how I, um, I ended up at IBM. And when you came back to Quebec, 
let's fast forward a bit because you and Michael Bach found a really important organization that endures today, Pride at Work. Tell me uh, yeah. about what led to that and your passion of bringing companies out of the closet, as you just as you say. When I came back to Montreal in 2006 to thank me, they they decided to send me to Alton Equal in Austin, Texas. The conference was amazing, and that time, out in equal, what there was 2,500 people at the summit in October. But it was like, if you never been, it was amazing, right? To see that many people, that many company, everybody gathering like that, and being proud to share their best practices, and uh, and you learn things, and you can come back home, totally fuel up of uh, food for thoughts, and to exchange. So. Me, I fell in love with Alden Equal automatically. And we were talking, and at one point we said, we need that in Canada. Hmm. And we were talking with uh, Alden Equal, and hmm. it would to start a chapter in Canada. But everything is different with the states, the way they work, the law, the management, and everything. Then we said, it's better if we start something from scratch. Right. So uh, right away, we got all together and we started Pride at Work Canada in 2008. Mm. And for me, that was the best thing ever because it was like, okay, it's not just my company. You know, that's great. Mm -hmm. I can help others and I can help others that are my customer. What was the vision when you started Pride at Work? What was the vision for the purpose of the organization and... Um, what it would achieve? Well, it was really to um, get every company to allow their employee to start an employee resource group, LGBT. Uh, the same way they were uh, having a will that women in leadership or anything or people with disability or to let a, a group and the company and that is lead by human resources with a budget and we had we have a plan and you know things the best practices and that's what we've been doing at IBM and that's what we've been doing at KPMG and using the power of our example and our corporation to in a way get everybody on board and uh, at the beginning there was bank like we're going to take national bank national bank was getting money giving money because they give money for aids they were giving money for emergence foundation but they had no employee resource group it was marketing giving it so my me what i did is i met with the vp at national bank talks with them um and a lot of time when you're a c-level and all that you don't see that you don't see the discrimination you have to go in the branch or you have to go in the shop or you have to go in the office to see it and they don't see it and that guy one of the vp was like i'm out everything is fine i'm like yes but i don't think in that branch they are or that branch so I got employees together and they started the ERG. Then after that, that was for me the first part to get people on board uh, as much as possible. So we were get, every year was getting more people. Like we started, we were almost all the bank. And then uh, it was uh, like TELUS and then uh, it was Bell. And then, you know, and some stayed, some left and depending, but it was really to share that best practice. And as well, um, to take away that social connotation that can have those employee resource group. 
They're not an entity. They're part of the business. Like at IBM, it's not called an employee resource group. It's called a business resource group now. Let's talk about some of the benefits. What benefits does it provide for companies that are willing to, to do I, this? I remember, and uh, I think it's 2010, that KPMG did a study. And they said that if you have 500 employees and more that are in the closet, and they calculated that through the week and last time, it's over a million point five a year the company lose because the person is not concentrated. So that's why I, I mean, I'm always like, it's, it's not like to be nice. Don't be nice. Don't say I'm going to start that group because I want to be a good person. Give me a break. Okay. Uh, let's be real. It's because it's good for your company. It's good for your employee. It's good for the retention. It's good for the attraction. It's good for the production. So, you know, you want to have people that say, oh, I'm happy I'm going to work tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And and I think your story of not and not having to kind of have this double narrative, because not only I imagine is exhausting to think, what did I tell that person? But then you probably just stop going to things that require you to do that extra work. You don't go to a social event. Exactly. You don't spend mm-hmm. that time with colleagues because it's just so stressful. And so you're not able to bring your full potential to the company. Eventually, you might leave. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And when people tell me, oh, me, my personal life at work, I don't bring it. I'm like, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. You have it all over you. You know, uh, right. the way you place your hair, the way you dress, the way you eat, the way you act is your personal life. I know while you were achieving all this, you know, one thing you mentioned earlier is there had never been an apology from the military for the purge that you had. No, but it's personally. worse than that. But it's because worse. Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Every time I was talking about that story, people were kind of more like, oh, that happened a long time ago. Uh, yeah. It's not like that anymore. Really? Uh, I never had uh, one organization that came around and told me, oh, we should fight that. Like <laughs> EGAL or, uh, or in, uh, Conseil Québécois or anything like that. So for the longest time, people fought each one on their side, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and never really made it, uh, never really won anything hmm. except for Michelle. Hmm. But she won for herself, right? Mm-hmm. So the, you're going to find that funny. But the first time I used my story uh, was without an equal. When I went to present for the ally, I told my story because we decided to tell our story. Why it's so important for us, the inclusion. And then people started to say, oh, really? No, no, no. So I saw, and I saw that as well, it was emotional for me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to talk about it. So I was like, oh, I'm bringing something out here, right? right. And that, that's why in 2014, I, f- I felt like, oh, I need to do something. Because something is, mm-hmm. not, is, is not going right with me. Mm-hmm. I've been fighting. I've been doing all those things. Mm-hmm. But I never resolve my story. What did it look like and what did it feel like when the apology finally came after all those years? 
Well, it was almost like a dream. Uh, I still remember traveling to Ottawa to go uh, because they really did it in an amazing way. We uh, were all invited with our spouse to be there. And we were all on the balcony in front of him when he was giving the apology. And as well, I, I knew um, that we give him uh, the life story to read of one of my colleagues uh, that was right in front of him. That, you know, you, you touched something earlier about being misogyne. While uh, there was more, we believe, more women uh, that were arrested and all that. And on top of it, a lot were raped afterwards. Um, so I think why he was so in touch is as well. He read the story of my friend, which was rape after. Um, and I think as a man like him and uh, to hear that, that we went to that extent, because you have to understand that was a black and white law that was in the federal agency for 50 years. So even when we say after 1969, things were decriminalized, it's not true because it's almost like they decriminalized in the civilian, but what was the federal agency, they criminalized more. And we were forgotten into that. So um, I, I really, we really felt them. We really felt that helplessness that you, and to see what happened, because when you look at CSIS paper, they they were they investigated nine thousand people through fifty years, and how many people it's destroyed their life, uh, how many people killed themselves from it, or never talked about it afterwards. So it was a, a very special moment. Uh, to, to be there and to live it. Um, and as well, they even took a time uh, for us to meet one-on-one, -on -one, uh, the prime minister, that give us each one the apology in our hands. It's, um, it's an amazing story and the, your advice to never give up is so powerful. Never lose uh, fate, to never think that we cannot fight injustice, that what we do doesn't mean anything. To the contrary, we got an amazing settlement that was done in 11 months. Surely a class action can go on for three, four years. Everybody get their settlement. Uh, everyone will get a medal. And then the same time, we're revising all the the course that are done in the federal agency. There's a monument that will be built in Ottawa. There's an exhibition that will be done. So for me, I really like succeed to go and really do my best, best wish list possible with uh, now the LGBT Purge Fund uh, that Michelle is um, the executive director. And I'm sure there are so many people in this country who have deep gratitude uh, to you and to to all those who are involved in the courage to you know keep fighting for this what's next you know you've done so much what's next in your life or are you going to take a break from from the advocacy now <laughs> well no because i have to deliver the monument the exhibition so i'm the chair of the lgbt purge fund uh now we're gonna have to ask for an extension <laughs> Uh, but we're working really hard right now. Uh, Michelle Douglas is the executive director. Douglas Elliott is part of the board with Todd Ross and all that. And mm -hmm. we're working on delivering those main for our project, which is a monument uh, of 8.2 million that will hmm. be done in Ottawa. We got the land already and we're 
2,000 people will be able wow. to uh, celebrate. And uh, um, at the same time, with the Museum of Human Rights of Winnipeg, uh, we get an exhibition uh, that will be done by them that will be able to travel. And like Amazing. I say, we will uh, revise all the diversity and inclusion training with the federal agency and we provide them a special um, subject to assist them. And the last one is to get all the archive that happened in that story. So uh, we're waiting Incredible. for those. Well, appreciate I appreciate you not only coming on and sharing your, your story with me, but I appreciate as a Canadian all you've done to bring about real change. I mean, I think we're we're lucky to have you in this country. And I think you know what I'm taking away is first, never give up. Second, speak out because it can make an impact. And third, you know, inclusion matters. It matters to people who you know and it matters to people who are out there but not saying anything. So And you can yeah. always be a minority. Never yeah. forget, you can always be, we can always be a minority. So the way we deal with others is, is the way we should deal with ourselves. And I think uh, it is important, uh, very important. I agree. So Martin, thank you so much for taking your time, sharing your story on the Inspired Podcast and for all you do. I uh, I wish you continued success. I know we'll, we'll stay in touch so I can, you know, um, continue to be inspired by what you're achieving in in the world for inclusion. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bart. Take care and have yeah. a great day. Okay, Thanks. Bye. Great to speak with Maltin Watt today to talk to someone who is so humble and yet who just personifies courageous leadership communication. A true testament to what's possible when you speak up and do so for those who often cannot. Our next podcast will be a very relevant one for the era we're in. It's with Rick Davidson. Rick is the Senior Vice President of Banking Services at CGI, which is Canada's largest IT services company. And we tackle how COVID and virtual communication have both created tremendous challenges for leaders who want to inspire, but also tremendous opportunities. And uh, I know you'll enjoy that discussion. So tune in next time for my conversation with Rick Davidson. Thanks.